Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jim Brinkman, Mark Bruner, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Secorum podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game. We are here to help you serve these literary offerings at your DCC RPG table. I'm Jen, and with me tonight are Bob. Hey, folks. And our new keeper, Mark. Hey, everyone. Yay! Yay. We have a Bruner. (laughs) (laughs) It's so glad to be here. I'm I'm, just, thank you guys so much for inviting me to do this. Well, thank you for coming along. Very exciting. You know the drill. You were definitely on the list. (laughs) (laughs) Above that Bob guy, even. But he'll probably edit that out. So tonight, as announced, and as repeatedly encouraged, we are finally reviewing the first book in Jack Vance's same-titled The Dying Earth Saga. Bob, take it away. Well, the six stories that make up the first volume of The Dying Earth are all set in an undefined, far future Earth when the sun is nearing the end of its life. The sky ranges from pink to deep blue, lit by a dim red sun, and many strange plants and animals exist. Much of the story is set within the forested country of Ascolay and in the ruined cities that dot the landscape. Seekers of wisdom and beauty include lovely lost women, eccentric wizards, and man-eating melancholy deodons. Twickmen ride dragonflies and trade information for salt. There are monsters and demons. It is a world where each being is morally ambiguous. The evil are charming. The good are dangerous. Wow. Perfect. Oh my god, did I enjoy this. I cannot believe I have never read any of the Dying Earth stories before. Is this your first time? <laughs> it, it is. It's my wow. first. It, it is. <laughs> See, you're above us in this one. <laughs> it's a really amazing story. It's a set of short stories, really, and they go on, right? That's a, the really neat thing is that there's yeah. you know, so many more beyond this as well. Well, and it's interesting in that depending on which version of the publication you have, the story order changes slightly. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The version I read, the story in Mezarian's Garden, is the second story. But originally, that was the opening of the book. That was the first story. Was oh, that makes sense. In the garden. Okay. So it's kind of neat to see that it, there's a little bit of bendiness with the stories themselves. And there were six within this book. I don't know how many other separate stories are contained within, what is it, the next three books? Or does it right. go on beyond four? The ones, if I remember correctly, that come after are much more of a saga right there's Kujil saga and some of the later magician ones and the rialto stories may be a little bit more segmented if i remember correctly but the Kujil is much more like an odyssey right it, in okay kind of context it's very same journey going from beginning to end in a couple of different outings that happened for him whereas in this one saiz is the only character that seems to span more than one of the stories well tertian also the, oh that's true the captured mage and yeah and nace 
Yes. And there's little interrelated components, I guess, is what I found. Okay. I was reading through it. Well, my understanding is that these were essentially all stories that he had submitted to the pulps that had not been accepted. And so when asked to put together a book, this is what he used because they hadn't been accepted for the pulps because they weren't formulaic enough. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean... Interesting. He was really neat. He was writing through... 2004. He just died a couple years ago. He died in like 2013. And he started high school when he was 11. He graduated when he was 15. So he was a savant. (laughs) He wrote his first piece of science fiction when he was in college. He took years off. So he was in college at the age of 21. He wrote a piece of sci-fi that was not received well. It was his first negative review. But he raised himself on pulps. He was determined when he couldn't pass the eye exam to become a merchant marine, he memorized the chart. <laughs> this is the kind of guy we have. And I think it's very obvious he was a precocious child, like, well, face it, a lot of gamers were. And so he absorbed every book possible, and it really shows in the language use. Oh, yeah. It's so evocative, and it's kind of alien and strange from what we're used to today, but it's not forced. It's not all just kind of trampling all over itself, using big words to use big words. It's wonderful. To me, I think the language is what really resonated with me when I was rereading this, because I, I read the stories about three years ago, and it was my first introduction to Vance, and it was just really more, I was into DCC, and I wanted to see some of the influences that led to how DCC treats it. And when I reread it, it was coming to it with this kind of sense of, oh my gosh, this language is the tapestry that D&D or Dungeons and Dragons leverages or uses. Because you know, for me as a, as a kid, when I was learning D&D, a lot of it was just that vocabulary, right? Encountering new right. words, you know, dexterity or duiamir or prismatic, and just trying to challenge myself with these language and how much that ties into the stories that Vance is creating. I just loved it. I just got so much out of just, you know, his inventiveness, whether it was just using an archaic word that he happened to, you know, draw from whatever past or pulp experience he's got or he just makes up new words right that are you know he's, he's, he's... <laughs> oh for which the is names very, of... which exactly. is very yeah. in appendix n especially oh, for yeah. proper names he creates this like rich language component that's a background in addition to all these other places that he's creating these sort of evocative settings that could become a, a whole place that you run your world or run your campaign it's, it's really neat well and with his language use i really think yeah i mean he was born in 1916 i think reading this really to me it kind of hammers home maybe even a little depressingly how much our language has sort of mainlined and just sunk to the middle there was so much beautiful evocative language in this and it's just i highlighted a specific few of these like the maroon light of the forest or describing the sun as old and red as an autumn pomegranate well you know for people that can't wrap their head around the sun being red that really just drives home the mental imagery that you need yeah to use language like this throughout your game as part of a description i think that would really help drive things home. There was a scene where somebody playing music, that music became motes in the air, and those motes burst, and the little bits that drifted down. That was how Vance described music. So of course, that definitely struck home, and nobody would even think to describe something like that in a modern book. So that really struck a chord, I should say. Ha! 
It was sort of like reading sci-fi Lovecraft. <laughs> exactly. You know, Lovecraft's yeah. language yeah, is very evocative, okay. and sometimes there's, like Mark mentioned, there's, yeah. there's words that you're like, huh, he made that up. Well, and I, uh, Yeah, no, but see, with Vance's language use, I can at least understand what he is getting at, as opposed to, oh, Lovecraft just took that into a completely different dimension. Lovecraft is a bit more verbose. Yeah. I think if you read Clark Ashton Smith or Abraham Merritt's, both of those are very similar to Lovecraft, and it's, they're the same sort of age, you know, the teens, the 20s, the 30s, you know, coming probably from this richer background, like you're saying, Bob, of where language is just much more of a tool. You know, you, the journals of that time, you might go back and read people writing letters to each other, and it's just, it's very much more formal, but also just higher level of, of language. Definitely. It's a lot richer. It's like the difference between reading a Civil War soldier's letter home versus one today. The language is just, it's changed. And I could see how Gary Gygax is taking that as an element and incorporating into the system or the game as a way of creating another layer of fantasy, right, for the modern age. That's kind of how I interpreted it. I love that sort of connection that, it, whether it was intentional or not, that's how I, I sort of came at it from a point of how did it influence me as a, as a reader and, and what am I connecting to modern times. You know, that makes a really good point that I hadn't thought of. When I was directing Renaissance fairs, I was directing entertainment, when it came to fair music, the rule was it doesn't have to be a period song, it just needs to evoke a feeling. It has to take you someplace else. And that's what the language really does. It's not that you can't use modern verbiage. It's that you need to use it in a way that evokes that whole feeling of fantasy. And like you said, with Gary Gygax, pulling some of these things helps set the tone. I'd even say that the inheritors of that, looking at Harley Stroh or Michael Curtis or some of the writers for Goodman, that they are carrying on that tradition in the modules they write or the adventures they write. And and it's just really neat to see this kind of caliber of writers doing the same thing and really taking that mystery or that, you know, some of the, the earlier modules where it's you're challenged as a reader, but it's making much more fun, right, in, in, this, in the context of what it, what it means to the adventure and the setting. And they're even building on the premises that authors such as Vance put forth. You know, there are many varieties of gods and demons, and I love the way that DCC just continues building on that deity and patron list <laughs> you know, throughout. <laughs> so many ideas for patrons in these books. Oh, <laughs> oh yes. Well, and I mean, looking at things, you often hear the term Vancey and magic when people are referring to you know, old school D&D spells. It's Vancey and magic, you memorize it, and then it's wiped from your brain. And while that's not the DCC system of magic, it's fascinating to actually read the origin of where that comes from and where so many D&D spells came from. You know, prismatic spray, shield, magic missile. Oh, yeah. So it's really easy to see how influential dying earth was the roots of gaming it wasn't and there's a lot of stuff on appendix n and a lot of it when you read it you're like oh i can see this or i can see that when i was reading this it was like okay if you change these stories and move them to greyhawk this is gaming as i grew up with <laughs> even the the very first story or at least the one that was first in the versions we read turgeon starts out preparing spells for an adventure and it talks about how magic is all about symmetry and balance and math oh, oh God. my gosh yeah i love that it's just, it's just this idea that math is the basis for magic and when turgeon is getting his apprenticeship the teacher is is telling him that spells and runes are built upon it the power of math and codified according to a great underlying you know mosaic right and it's this idea that math or science and magic are interchangeable which is a theme that kind of runs throughout the stories as well kind of explains those pesky little stats that we have to deal with too well and it kind of runs into i think it's arthur c Clarke's third law 
Any technology sufficiently advanced appears as magic. And so you're never really sure what's magic, what's ancient science, and it creates such a vivid world. And the way they were taking spells and they were combining them. I'm going to create a living creature, so I need this spell and this spell, and how did this work when I put the person in the vat? Yeah, that was cool. I also found something really interesting was that there's this little bit of element of horror to the spells as well. Maybe maybe right. horror in the sense of Lovecraftian, right? That your mind, or even an adept's mind, can only contain so much without going mad. And you can only store it for this occasion before it has to release it. You know, the idea that Mazarin and Turgeon you know that even them as powerful highly qualified magicians half a dozen spells is the most they can contain and even that is pushing the edge of what they can do so on a lighter note apparently the gods are dying as well as the earth (laughs) here and (laughs) i found it really interesting that even when they were found or approached or disturbed the gods themselves came across as kind of whiny and and fatalist yeah. Oh, they haven't learned yet? Oh, whatever. We're all going to die anyway. Wait, wait. No, but you're a god. Can't you do something about this? Well, that sort of makes sense. Maybe. Yeah, as, a, as a near immortal <laughs> being, when the, when the end is coming, you more than anybody else are going to go, well, we had a good run. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's, that's part of the case. The one character within this that I found most able to connect with would be Saïs, but she started out seeing the world as opposite, and that point of view was really interesting. She learned secrets of the ancients and secrets of the spells, but she still knew nothing of lying, or even cooperation. And even at the point where she started making that turnaround where, oh, well, maybe I could see things that are beautiful, but I can't. I think my brain is broken. And so she considers suicide. Well, and to be fair, her brain was broken. And that's a major well, theme a that runs to through begin the with, character. But... <laughs> right, it, it, but she's flawed. It's a major theme that runs through. It's very interesting. You know, how do I know what is good? You know, will yeah. I know evil when I see it since I come from someplace where I'm told there is no evil? What I got from her story was very it's it, like bob said there's a very similar theme that runs through several of these stories where her journey is coming from this place of you know i can't understand the world everything is evil but even when she reaches the end of that journey it's not like everything is going to be fixed right her, it still, still doesn't that, make sense yeah she still doesn't make sense and then that last story too where i'm gonna i'm gonna oh, guyal of sphere guyal of sphere where yes. he is journeying to find knowledge but even after achieving that journey there's this sense of fatalism or exactly you know, the the end is still coming the earth is still dying there's nothing that can fix that yeah, and, he, and it, he even found his goal he even exactly. found what he was after and yeah it just didn't work out the way he expected <laughs> yeah in the end he can answer his questions but the answers of his questions really bring him no peace yeah one of the most poignant pieces of language throughout all of this really stuck with me it, it was at the very end where the god Curlin says the earth is going to need knowledge more now than ever. And it just seemed such an odd thing to say at the end of the earth, as the earth is dying, then why do you need so much knowledge? It just seemed a a very poignant and, dare I say, timely bit of text. (laughs) Well, Bob, you've, you've talked about the spells and whatnot. I know that these are things that you're thinking of writing up. 
there, a lot of it really fascinated me in the way things combined, but there were certain things that really kind of stuck in my brain. The Twick men, the little green men that rode dragonflies and would trade information for salt or essential oils and things of that nature. The imagery for me is really easy. I grew up playing with Micronauts. They were little green men. They, they even had <laughs> bugs they could ride. Um, Did they have little lances too? <laughs> Uh, some of them did, yes. <laughs> of course. Uh, and so that imagery really kind of stuck out, and I, I like the concept of them. They remind me of things I've seen in other games, like the Shorties and Metamorphosis Alpha and a few others. So they've got this fairy-like quality, but what they really are is, is kind of up to debate. I think they would be fun to do either as a creature or maybe even as a class. Yeah, those reminded Ooh, me of really the little idea. things in, was it Down to a Sunless Sea, the one by Lynn Carter that we read? Mm-hmm. The little, uh, with the guys riding on the back of the dragonfly-like creatures. Yeah. Yes, they, they were larger, but yeah, there's, there's certainly a parallel there. The curator has struck me as a great potential patron, this guardian of knowledge and things of that nature. But what really hit me as, I guess, the most inspirational was when they were talking about Gael's questions and all of the questions he would ask his father before his father said, if you want those answers, you need to go to the curator. Do flowers grow under the ocean? Where does beauty go when it vanishes? And I like the idea of taking those sort of esoteric questions and statting something based on those. Where does beauty go when it vanishes? Is there something that devours it? Is there some sort of spirit that that lives and breathes unseen around us and just sort of sucks it away from us? And sucks it away from the world? Something like that would be fun, and it fits with the kind of nihilistic view the world is dying. Well, okay, the world is dying. Beauty is fleeting. Why? Is, there's things that eat beauty. It goes even faster. Yeah, that's a really interesting take on it. That's yeah. I think that that would be really lovely to see what you could have you know, stat up or or how you could create you know something a judge could use as a tool. That'd and be beautiful. You could introduce it to the game as the question coming from somebody kind of enigmatic. Do flowers grow under the ocean? You must answer me in order to get. To the next step of your journey. Or just at the beginning of an adventure, there's a small child that's asking all of these inane questions. Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? Where does beauty go when it vanishes? And that becomes the focus. Where does beauty go? I, you can do a lot with these kind of seemingly throwaway lines. Man, that makes for a really dark adventure idea, though. Jeez. Well, it is the It's a setting, yeah. Well, yeah, it is true. What about you, Jan? Well, I, you know, I was looking at some of the more simple things, like the bobbins or the spools that were used to store the parts of the demon as he was unraveled. Oh, that was creepy and cool simultaneously. Exactly. I love that, yeah. It kind of seemed to, with the whole thread idea, tied into the idea of the tapestry that Liane was sent to get when he was trying to coerce the Golden Witch. Oh, yeah. like, oh God, oh, that story was dark. They never actually described anything more about that tapestry, except that it was held by Chun the Unavoidable. And, well, was that tapestry a product of the Three Fates? Or was it something the Fates had been drawn from as well? You know, it almost seemed like it was a window to another world that she was trying to put back together so she could escape, was what I took away from that. She was like, someday I'll I'll return. And it was, yeah, that was really neat. It's, it's almost like a way for her to escape the, the current present, you know, whether it's going back in time or to you know, sort of like a, a dimension like the Pandaloom lives in, where he's separated from this earth that's mortal and he's 
living in this pocket dimension almost. This pocket Eden, yeah. Exactly. And the Twickmen referred to, in their little news report that they were giving Leanne, something had killed the Dream Builder. So kind of in the vein of where you were going, you could actually create something and explain how the Dream Builder was killed. And what it was. Exactly. Yeah, or that's, or that's... vaguely. I should say. Not exactly. <laughs> okay, I'm almost afraid to ask, Mark. There's so much, like Bob was saying, that the throwaway lines, you know, there's things that don't get explained, but they're so evocative that you want to explore, you know, what they are. And then there's the concrete things that would make just really great artifacts or the spells, things that clearly influence Dungeons & Dragons or some of the original games, and things that didn't know. That, that Those would be kind of the fun things to explore. I love the idea of like this life gong, the the life gong that holds power over this other magician or sorcerer that terrifying, you know, that he is compelled to answer the questions through. I like the fact that a lot of the system of barter that was present in the dying earth, that money didn't seem to have, you know, a concept, you know, there are diamonds, of course, things that were, you know, clearly riches, but salt being used to pay off the Twickmen or the thial dust that was used to trade, uh, I think, for the inns that people stayed in or repel the diadems. And the idea that these sort of artifacts or commodities of Earth create like this interesting sort of barter system within a game would be a, a kind of a fun thing to take away from a setting and, and kind of evoke the end of sort of nations building out. It's really much more focused on these small communities of survivors. And when thinking of barter, the wizards didn't barter spells. They grabbed each other, captured each other, and tortured <laughs> right. one another. Oh, my God. There's only a hundred spells left and I want your spell there was none of this hey what do you have in your spell book I'll show you what's in mine no no it was I will kill you slowly but if you tell me what you know I'll kill you quick or subterfuge and stealing right when, when yeah. you have to have to do that that's a really interesting concept is everybody's very protective of that knowledge which makes it even more interesting that the constructs were given that information Pandalum let Saïs learned the secrets of the spells that he knew, I guess knowing full well that she couldn't cast them, but maybe she was his backup in case something happened to his written material. Oh, there's something to stat. The spell create backup hard drive. <sighs> Data dump. Uh, or a different I, type of grimoire, right? That That is the grimoire in, in oh, Pandaloom's geez. case, right? That, in Eidetic memory, yeah. I mean, wow. Speaking of Pandaloom, Pandaloom as a patron is just dying for statting because that is sort of the wizard patron that has a neat kind of twist because there's all sorts of things about Pandaloom that are mysterious, but this you know, sort of horrifying appearance. But one thing I found really neat about Pandaloom was this sense of balance, right? That he is a, I will do something for you, but you must do something for me, which is, of course, you know, very DCC-based. But he's he's also talking about, just in general, the idea that there is balance in the, in the universe or balance in magic. And it, kind of this idea that as a patron, you know, he sort of evokes this sort of middle ground or, or more cocky in sense of balance of between chaos and law that would be kind of neat to write up how we do that in terms of his patronage and he's actually fair about it too he's not trying to lead you into some faustian deal where i'll do this for you and you're gonna do this horrific thing for me and even to the point where you've done me a great service let me do more for you he's really honest and sincere about that balance yeah he was a, a very interesting personality in this i, I think another stat worthy area is Mazarian's wonderful garden, this idea of vegetable, animal plants, and hybrids that swallow creatures, but it's this sense of beauty that he's trying to protect this, you know, this, this Eden. But I just love the, the descriptions of the blood flowing through some of the roses that gives them that <laughs> color. 
and how the injured one kind of coos and calls to him. Yeah, yeah, that does that does beg to be stated. And, and the right. flowers were awakening in the day. Right. right. So they, they were definitely given that personification. Yeah. Looking through your list, I'm going, I, I feel like I missed half of this. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rich in ideas. Yeah, that that's probably the best way to put it. Actually, I mean, probably more so than anything else we've read so far for the show. There is so much crammed into these stories. Because none of it is taking place on a world that we know. Nearly every single idea is new and foreign, which, God, makes it ripe for DCC pickings. So, shall we move on to props and audios? I suppose. You know, Sias' journey, covering probably a good half of the book, if not more. I had Steel Eye Span in my brain pan background. A little folksy, a little bit archaic, but it fit for the fantasy setting, the utopian setting, and and even during the demon summoning orgy, you know, the... Everything was just kind of flowing along in the background. I think props I came across a little richer. The cylinder. First of all, the Lovecraftian cylinder that may as well have been a Mygo brain case. (laughs) May as well have. Um, It sprouts pseudopods. It sprouts this brain thing. And just dozens of appendages that reach out to the street to do horrible things. It was an angry god. It was a very, very angry god. But it was a god in a cylinder. So, (laughs) really, it's kind of a threat. All you have to do is find a nice-sized cylinder, and and you don't even have to put a little voice box in it, like the one that Jeff Carey did to us. Yeah, the one with the big brain. Yeah, Uh, they put a pig brain in it and attached it to a walkie-talkie and had a player outside the room that was talking through it. It was very creepy. Yeah, it, it, yeah. And, uh, yeah, the the meowing of the cat inside it later. No, no, done. Okay. <laughs> I was also thinking if you could find something like a giant bronze ring, two to three feet in diameter, or alternatively, find a hula hoop. Take out the noise-making crap on the inside and just spray this stupid thing, you know, metallic color. There's your portable dimension. Mm-hmm. I was thinking of those uh, little vest-like uniforms that they used to make you wear in gym when you were on flag football teams or whatever. The whole concept of green versus red versus gray determining whether you're on an evil force. You know, are, the, are you the raiders? Are you the impartial party? You could even take that a step further at your table and look at your players. And if you've got players wearing red and you've got players wearing green, their characters can no longer see each other. Oh, kind, that would kind, be a... kind of the point, yeah. <laughs> that would be, that'd be devious. Yeah. yeah. Bring a flute or, or some other small uh, wind instrument and keep pressing them as an NPC. Keep pushing the players, asking if they'll play this instrument as opposed to their own. Man, that was kind of a bizarre scene. I know we found recently pretty large dragonfly ornaments and decos. Mm-hmm. We found those at, like, CVS. At yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't be difficult to turn those into something for the Twickmen. They'd be about the right size for the players, too. And uh, lastly, you know, if you could find a bracelet, costume jewelry stuff with the large stones, maybe draw or paint some runes on them, and then separate them, and then give the party a quest to find all of the pieces and reassemble Saisa's bracelet that had been given to her which directed magic casted upon her back upon the casters. That would be cool. 
So you've got a magic item in the making, but maybe with a little taste of the making of the ghost ring. Well, and you could have any number of horrible things that go wrong if they put them back together in the wrong order. Oh, I love that idea that you're playing with the ordering of the words and that creates like a different sequence or combination that the players are now have to be drawn into or solving. Especially if it's a caster trying to assemble them because that caster is going to imbue his own power. And that's kind of the opposite of what the bracelet's meant for. So that's my little list. You know, when I was prepping for what props I would think of in terms of bringing to a game, I don't really consider myself a a very prop-centric judge. And I was trying to contemplate what that means in terms of bringing sort of an ambiance. And I realized I actually am a pretty prop-centric judge in the terms of I love props that are puzzle or mechanical in nature that you give to a player or the group and they have to solve akin to the you know that rune you know sequence that Jen was talking about I love the idea of like intrigue a court of chaos where one of the players is asked or tasked with creating life out of this clay and they're judged based on you know how well that is represented or you know the one who watches from below in the eye masks that that mm. the prop, you know, prop <laughs> is part of that mechanic and and I realize that you know a lot of what I I like to do to players is change around how they you know, see characters or how they look at character sheets or hand them like a, you know, a puzzle prop and they start twisting and turning it to try to solve it. Or they don't realize that by just touching it, they may have changed it. Right. And so I love those kind of ideas. And the other thing that I was trying to tie in with that was the idea of words and Vance's language and use of language. And because words are so important to the stories and how they create this theme, one really neat thing you could do, you could create like a list of Vancean words, you know, kind of like a list of, uh, you know, those old Lovecraft magnets that mm-hmm. you paste up on the mag- refrigerator and people assemble them in different orders. Well, that would be a cool <laughs> prop. You have a Vancean word list like that. And you have the players, you know, maybe in some situation where they're timed, have to create sentences out of these unusual or archaic words that they may not know the meanings of. And then, you know, based on how that language or that sentence assembles, that could be an effect, right? So you might have something that is beneficial to the players or they may have gotten it wrong and it's you know it, it kind of changes the situation so kind of this puzzle test for the you know players where they're they're using these the words that are in the stories themselves i thought that'd be kind of an, an interesting that's actually really cool as opposed to using just runes or symbols give them words that actually do mean something whether or not they know because that'd be perfectly fitting for putting them in a setting that they're not familiar with i like then, that yeah, and, and, and another idea I had was this. There's a scene in one of the stories when Ulandor has to recover these two different tablets that, when merged together, make sense. They create a comprehensible text. And you could do something with transparencies or different shapes that, when you combine them, you, the players have to figure out the right combination. Or if they only recover part of that text, they have to guess at the meaning, and that, that may lead to unforeseen consequences. I thought that might be a kind of a neat prop to use as a puzzle aspect during an adventure. I am so using these. Those are pretty slick. <laughs> and it just that, 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 that's an exciting idea to me, to hand the player something that they don't quite know what the challenge is, and, and they have to come up with a creative solution. And sometimes that creative solution is not something the judge is expecting, and they, that's when they, the judge goes off of improv, you know, and, and says, you know, this is what happens. If that's what DCC is a lot to me, oh, what yeah. it does for me. Rulings as opposed to rules. Yeah. As far as other examples, obviously, if you're going for a, a more ambient feel, a lot of that garden sort of made me think of exotic fruits. You know, maybe you come in to your players with like a Buddha's hand and you have these like very fragrant fruits that are that are part of the table because it's, it's like this rich setting that you want to evoke. I thought 
perhaps as for music, it made me think of pulsed the planets for some reason. I just you know, I had this idea of the you know the Earth orbiting and, and dying, and you know you know very classical sort of music or some of the work that Hans Zimmer did in the Interstellar soundtrack, which I thought was also much more science sort of themed and would might make a good you know, setting or pairing with uh, running some adventures in this, uh, in this context. Or any one of the hundreds of movies that Zimmer has scored. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. What about you, Bob? Musically, when I think of The Dying Earth, I kind of get this uh, Bakashi's Wizards feeling. I, I love that movie. Visually, it's it's really attractive, and I'm kind of pulled to music that gives me that same feeling for this. So that kind of drew me to dark prog rock. Hmm. <laughs> groups like Vandergriff Generator, Il Balletto di Bronzo, Arachnoid, Morth Macabre, and their album Symphonic Holocaust. This <laughs> Yeah, you know, this wow, great this titles. Kind of, yeah, it, but it's this swelling. It, it's like the music you would hear at Epcot, but dark. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and it just it for me it evokes both the future and despair. There's also if you want to go a little further towards progressive metal, there's Mount Erie, and their stuff is certainly very dark and discordant. And I find that it, it really fits the setting as well. That discordancy sets you on edge. For me, that's the dying earth. It's so cool how we all came up with just completely different ideas on that. Because there's no wrong way to do it. Exactly. <laughs> Prop-wise, I mean, you could do a number of, of things with inexpensive fashion weight bracers and wrist cuffs. You, know, you could you go to Hot Topic and pick up some junk jewelry. <laughs> And you go to town for like 10 bucks, you could you could have something amazing. Or you could go to a different type of store and spend a lot more money and be more durable, but you don't you don't need to go there. Um, <laughs> different show, thinking, different costuming. Yeah. <laughs> but thinking of the dependency of runes and how, you know, all these various items have runes and symbols, you can pick up, there was an author, Ralph Blum, and he put out a, the Book of Runes. And in the 80s and 90s, it was ubiquitously everywhere. Now it's probably a little bit harder to find. But it was one of those small kind of cloth-bound books that you'd find in the gift department at a bookstore that would come with a pouch, and in the pouch was a full set of Norse runes. Oh, that'd be neat. And you could then move forward and have your players, okay, you're charging up this item, draw a rune, and then you as the judge could actually look in the book of runes, see if you know how it's oriented, and look at the meaning of that rune and decide how it is going to work or what it is going to do. It becomes this exercise in interpretation. And while I wouldn't say replace combat with it, it might be a really interesting way to do a spell check or oh. a corruption check. Pull out this rune and you might draw, well, this, this is the rune of, of defense. That is true, but you drew it backwards. So instead your spell has gone off, but it's gone horribly wrong. It's, you've got a misfire. You could do oh, things like that. Those and would be great during uh, spell duels. Yes, yes, they would. And it allows you to then to take a prop directly into the game mechanics. Yeah. Those were my ideas. Those that's great. That's, yeah. Pretty cool. So what about DCC inspirations and reskins, Mark? What were you thinking when you read this? Oh my gosh, there's so much of, you know, when you're reading Vance, it's calling for that setting of post-apocalypse, that setting of artifacts that are lying around that, you know, people are using in, as, whether they're, they term it magic or they term it science. A lot of that was, for me, against the Atomic Overlord, really echoed, especially the, right the there scenes. With you. 
right there with you. <laughs> yeah, in the city of Emperdavor, because that city is itself is a kind of a living artifact that's in a state where the walkways still move. You can still encounter these vehicles that you can travel in and fly in. And what Edgar Johnson wrote, it, it echoes a lot of the encounters that I felt um, as I was reading through uh, Atomic Overlord. Some of that is, is also true about the Museum of the End of Time, you know, obviously the Museum of Man, the last story being this sort of end goal, and it's a repository for all knowledge. And it's not quite, you know, what the person seeking that knowledge is actually expecting. And it's been corrupted or it's been changed. That was another uh, adventure that I felt was part of a kind of similar concept. The 998th Conclave of Wizards, you know, there's an obvious sort of rich magic, the thousand spells, the fact there's so few remaining, and there's this competition among wizards to get spells and magic that you were talking about, Bob, which is, you know, kind of clearly a lot of what Joe Bittman was also puzzling out or showcasing in Conclave. An odd one that I thought was kind of a neat connection for me, at least, was Paul Wolf's God Seed Awakens, and I don't know if either of you are familiar with that, but there's this... I haven't haven't read it yet. It's a neat sort of idea of interplanar sort of uh, dimension spanning being or creature that is trying to plant seeds in, in different realities and take over you know all of reality but there's this idea of the seed that's awakening and you know connected to its minions sort of like the rogal figure uh, in the story that's connected to his city and trying to teach a lesson to his uh, these people the grays and the reds and the greens Jeez. and slept way too long yeah, that's right. yeah. <laughs> one area i'm pretty familiar with also is the gong farmer Ar- almanac and i think that there's a lot of like little small nuggets that you can pull from there last year's issue there was one that was eric hoffman submitted one for siri uh, an interdimensional patron and this patron is uh, a patron that has taken over different pocket universes and made them his own and so it's a really neat patron write-up that kind of evokes this pantaloon wizard or the fact that magicians get so powerful in, in the Vance world, they try to isolate themselves and hoard knowledge. And I kind of like that from what Eric was doing with his write-up. Uh, another one that was really neat, I thought, when I was uh, first reading DCC a long time ago was Daniel Bishop's Silent Nightfall, which is part of the Campaign Element series. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, he had us playtest that. Oh my gosh, that's it's a wonderful those owl little... things. Yeah, yeah. the crap out of me. Yeah, that that's and all it's... that stuck with Bob. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great small scene of this encounter with an unknown science, magic, technology, and yeah. it is just it's just so fitting to you know everything that I was reading when I was reading through the Vance stories. Oh, even just the intro to that with the little girl, and yeah, yeah. yeah. How about you, Jen? I'm right there with you with Against the Atomic Overlord, you know, down to the remaining sense of economy, the old tech that's out there, and there was a species who at one point thought they were the last ones left on the planet, which was very similar to what Ulandor ran into. Um, But I, I have to start out by saying, I cannot wait to see how Chun the Unavoidable is compared to in Rodney winner Dan Glover's upcoming Tune the Unspeakable. <laughs> I really can't wait to see if there are any similarities there. Going into Mazirian the Magician, you know, he wanted to keep this woman in a cage of green glass, and he uses size reduction as an offensive spell, so of course I'm going to go with the Emerald Enchanter there. Daniel Bishop's Prince Charming Reanimator really comes to mind when you've got things like reanimating fluid 
and the Lovecraftian stuff being thrown at you. One that really, really resounded with me was uh, Jim Wampler's Sky Masters of the Purple Planet with the air cars and, as you were saying, Mark, just the timeless technology there. There was the Corridor of No Weight as, oh, as right. they were shafted up this magic elevator kind of thing. And the emphasis even on, on the colors and uniforms of the officers versus just the little cadets in there. The chapter with Gael of Sphere in The Dying Earth really kind of took me to Doom of the Savage Kings. You know, he's there to maybe do this quest, but he's brought in by the locals and says, you have to swear you're never going to do this. You you broke this rule. You have to swear you're never going to do this again. And then you have to choose the loveliest one here. And then you have to take her to the museum. It really kind of sounded like, okay, well, you have to try to avoid this happening and then, you know, maybe rescue this girl, but she doesn't think she's being rescued at all. Am I totally off base on this one? No, I, I don't think so. She didn't think she was being rescued because she knew that nobody ever came back. He thought he was rescuing her and then he's like, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Terribly sorry to put you in danger. <sighs> yeah. Outside of the obvious, which we'll get to in a few moments um that's pretty much where i'm gonna draw my list okay well right off the bat i I love the concept of the curator i love the idea of this guardian of of knowledge i've done various things in various games where i've had some sort of powerful force that has been a sage or a collector of knowledge and it reminded me a little bit of the old man of the mountain from michael curtis's new independent release secret antiquities uh, hot oh, off the presses. Yeah. yeah. It's hot off the presses. It's the Journal of Esoteric America. And the first it's issue lovely. is all patrons of Esoteric America. So, you know, there's Uncle Sam, the Auntie Sam, and then there's the Old Man of the Mountain, which is this rock outcropping that was real that collapsed in 2003, and that gets discussed. And it's also this patron of knowledge. I think that they could easily be used interchangeably or melded together. And I just that to me was was a really happy coincidence that that was just released, and I was staring at the curator. Adventure wise, you know, if you wanted to set up a campaign based on obnoxious child questions, you know, are there flowers <laughs> under the sea? You could do the Sea Queen escapes, or you could even start with what is beyond the sky and go straight into hole in the sky. There's answers to these questions and the modules have answered them. You know, the sea queen escapes the hole in the sky, check these places out. You can drag your players there. Yeah. I love that idea of the, when Gael is going on this journey that he has to stay on this path, you know, he's blessed on this path. That's sort of that, that idea within hole in the sky of you have to, you know, don't, don't sway or, or tread, you know, to the sides here. Otherwise you'll, you'll fall off this bridge, you know, or the, the, yeah. Yeah. You will, you will find out that there might not be flowers under the ocean, but there might be a big red (laughs) splotch on top of it for a minute. (laughs) Briefly. (laughs) You and your other chums. Yes. Also speaking of Chun the unavoidable or Chun the unavoidable, I suppose his robe the black robe covered in eyes threaded on with silk to me this is this is the ultimate follower of the one who watches from below mm, yeah this is the person that leaves sacrifices and offerings you know who makes sure that the gems are maintained so that people are trapped by the mask he would be a great just just visually a great oh. npc to add to that adventure to give it a little bit more zing 
I mean, not that it, it needs more zing. And it's fitting that it's also by Job. I mean, I think of the prop you could put together with an a yeah. robe of eyeballs that you could stitch. <laughs> can we not? Can we not? Come on. Uh. Oh, my gosh. But something else that really hit me while I was reading this, it's been announced. Goodman has the license for Dying Earth for DCC. Job Bittman is heading up this project. As I was reading these stories, I was getting more and more excited about the fact that Job is doing the Dying Earth because I think his aesthetic, I think, is going to bring so much to the Dying Earth that I really cannot wait to get my hands on it. And this concludes our blatant plugs. I was just excited. (laughs) Actually, it it doesn't. Who am I kidding? There's more to come. (laughs) So on that cheerful note, um, I think that's going to bring us to our DCC RPG feature for the show, perhaps. Ooh, yes, it does. And this is a this is great. I love this this connection. Yes, we talk about it every time, and there are probably listeners going, "Come on, you guys are forgetting the obvious." No, we're going to feature Black Sun Deathcrawl. Black Sun Deathcrawl by James McGeorge. Yeah, you are the cursed remnants of life in a universe of decay, cannibalistic parasites. You suck a meager existence from the corpse of a long-dead reality. Once you had nations, races, goals. Now you are one, united at last in the unending struggle for survival in a reality that abhors you. Once you had love and happiness and light, now there is only the crawl. I think this totally captures the vibe of, of the dead earth once Vance's final ending hits. What's left but the cursed? Well, and and Saïs's point of view makes a lot more sense now. Oh, definitely. There's there's no beautiful. There is only ugly. Yeah. Um. So bright and happy and cheerful. And uh, on a side note, I will only say that never before have we been reduced to monosyllabic communication at a table so quickly. <laughs> and we discovered <laughs> you know, th- how much damage dead babies do. D three. Yep. D three. But I, yeah. overall, there's such a similarity <laughs> to when when you're reading the Vance stories and there's all these vestigial civilizations that are just clinging to memories of once was. And when you're playing in Black Sun Deathcrawl and there's the small little group of dwarves trying to get to an enclave, trying to survive, trying to cling to what was there, that sense of oh, you poor people don't know what's about to happen, that Damoclesian doom that just hangs over everything is so fantastic. Uh, Black Sun Deathcrawl is by far and away one of my favorite RPG experiences of all time. James McGeorge ran it for us at Gary Con last year, and while I did break the adventure like I want to do, I loved every moment of it. Yes, you... you uh, Your experience in that game, Gael of Sphere, is... is... He really reminded me of this. He, he's going to see the curator. He's he's trying to get to the Museum of Man. He made it there. He achieved that part of his goal, but now he's kind of stuck and, and that, screwed. That curator of knowledge is no more. Yeah. You know, that everything is dying. Everything is ending. And, and there's a sense of, you know, all of his surrounding people, his father, you know, the ones that he grew up with, they don't care about knowledge. They think it's an oddity that he is asking or seeking this information. They are slowly devolving into this kind of end form. That, that's what it 
that's how the connection, you know, is that the end of the world is coming and it's this black sun in Black Sun Death Crawl. It's the flickering light of the, the, the red sun in Vance's world. It's, just, it's very compelling, you know, experience to sort of play through that in, in like a black sun experience, like you were saying, Bob. Now, I have to wonder, did Gael's father know what he was sending him to? Or was the idea of the curator just a joke to everybody in that particular little culture? I mean, it, they, they seem to send him there like, oh, just just leave. Like, just just go explore somewhere, kid. Get well, out of I, here. I think that might have kind of been it. You know, go away, kid. You bother me. It was sort of the way to, to quiet the kid that just keeps asking, but why? why but why and so just given this answer not understanding he's so precocious that he's going to follow it along i got the i got the sense of and find it you know his father understood him in, enough to know that he would never be happy and in his current situation and so he was giving him an exit and he was giving him the tools to go and find that exit or that end goal blessing his path giving him this shelter that he can use giving him this dagger that protects him with light and things like that. It's just that he he recognized enough about his son that he was not going to fit in ever. And that's kind of what I was was seeing from that relationship. Yeah, well, and I think nice. that just the two settings, it would almost be interesting to run the actual end of the dying earth and perhaps the reason the reason that the red sun is dying is because the black sun is becoming ascendant and drawing in all of that energy. But also, Black Sun Deathcrawl has proved itself to be not only inspirational, but very versatile. I mean, Stephen Bean Games has released one, I think, two adventures based on it. There was Null Singularity. Singularity. And I think Rock God Deathfugue is also inspired by Black Sun Deathcrawl. It's not a reskin. It's its own thing. But I'm pretty sure both are inspired by Black Sun Deathcrawl. It's it's this whole new look. That's another right off the presses one that uh, I haven't had the luxury of glancing at yet it is but it but they do advertise it with eternal appreciation for james mcgeorge's black sun <laughs> death girl so i mean it's well i know, think even that... in even in this book how many gods ended up dying i mean it's yeah. definitely oh, and, the and, end and, of and there's a scene like, in, in, in black sun death crawl where you can encounter this once powerful god sort of in a reverse time as it's you know there's a chance of doing that and that's very similar to dance's idea of, of deities that are diminishing or the one that is captured by the coven as they're torturing it you know there's something to torture this you know this now powerless god it's very sort of nihilistic very you know uh, similar to what i took away from the the black sun's death call crawl treatment of gods as well and there was the old man that liane the wayfarer just drops a block of granite on his head oh gosh <laughs> and oh yeah. man that I think we did that, actually, when we played Black Sun Death Girl. Exactly. That, that's why I'm so gobsmacked over here. I'm, I'm like, wait, wait, Um, this happened. Uh, 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 yeah. Yeah, this is a better tie-in than we thought, James. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I've never made any, any pretense that, that I don't love the adventure. I mean, hence why it comes up so often, because it's it certainly springs to mind. But... In so many ways, you know, between the decay of societies or, you know, looking at the individuals. Well, we need to do this. We need to sacrifice these people, but we're not going to tell you we're sacrificing them. But people need to die so we can live. Or we can't even acknowledge that these people exist in order to maintain our own existence. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, wow. Yeah. Happy and depressing. Yeah. <laughs> 
And because of that, I think that just the way you have the journey and he follows the path and Gael is just sort of this weird little light that moves through and he kind of is representative, I think, of hope in Black Sun Death Crawl. He has hope. You know, he doesn't know it's at the end of his journey, and he certainly might you know, lose hope at the end. But through his entire journey, as he perseveres, he has that beacon of hope that he continues to, to use to, to push through things. There are so many similar concepts, and I, I think it's nice to see that both Vance overall being inspirational to gaming and Blacks on Deathcrawl as a third-party product has been fairly inspirational in the DCC community. It, it really is. You couldn't come up with a better match. Well, yeah, and you know, like I said, Saez considers suicide when her goal isn't attainable, and that is perfectly acceptable in Black Sun Deathcrawl, except that you're not actually going to get the pleasure of dying. <laughs> so yes, I think, we, I think we heartily recommend The Dying Earth and Black Sun Deathcrawl. This is literature to slit your wrists by, but in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now that we've hammered those nails into the coffin, we could switch gears for a moment here and uh, jump back to our last show and, and do a little house cleaning there. Yes. Maybe announce the winners of our Tarzan content competition. I think that's great. For last month, uh, we had some really great contributions. We had Forrest Gary and his Jungle Man Mighty Deed Vinery. Daniel J. Bishop gave us some stats for Tarzan, which appeared in last month's issue of the zine. Todd McGowan's fantastic Tarzan art, which is also a prize. And that and, was also in last month's issue. And Jonathan Nickel gave us a write-up for the use of the lasso. So we drew prizes and... Jonathan, you're getting the original Todd McGowan piece, courtesy of Todd himself, and Yay. a copy of Treasure Bolts of Zadabad, kindly provided by Carl Bussler and Eric Hoffman at Stormlord Publishing. Forrest, we're going to send you a copy of Treasure Vaults of Zadabad, and, you know, we're going to throw in a random appendix and book from the stacks while I'm at it. Awesome. Daniel, we're going to send you a set of the original Shannara trilogy. How about that? And that is Sword of Shannara, <laughs> Elf Stones of Shannara, and Wish Song of Shannara. Was that I expected the... an adventure based on those within yeah. a month. Yeah, really? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, fancy. And for Todd McGowan, we're, we're going to send you something nice as a thank you, even though you told us not to, so deal with it. <laughs> Uh, and honestly, we have so many prizes here and in the stacks that we're going to continue the contest. Send us your appendix and inspired creations. We'll include it in our companion zine. Hey, free coverage. And we'll send you something from the prize box. Ta-da! See, Mark, you joined, you joined the show too early because, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's exciting, and I'm glad that everybody... Um... The Tarzan-inspired stuff was really neat, too, especially Jonathan's write-up. I really love the, the way he applied the lasso to the story. Yeah, I thought that was really neat. And I hadn't even... I, I'm embarrassed to admit, as much as I love Mighty Deeds, I hadn't even considered a Jungle Man, Vine, Mighty Deeds sort of thing. Uh, that that was really cool, too. It was all fun. So, Giogo has announced that the Portuguese translation of DCC is now in crowdfunding. Yay! Uh, you can check out our website for more information at a link. There is quite the list of potential module translations of stretch goals. They're talking about, you know, the standard cover, the black cover, maybe the wizard's cover. 
Jen is wincing as I mention all of these covers. Um, so <laughs> that's a lot of shipping. Yeah, <laughs> there's a lot of fantastic. Yes, but the dollar is really strong right now. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> okay. So just keep that in mind. It, it'll play, pay for all those um, Duolingo uh, courses that you'll take uh... for learning the Portuguese translation. Oh, yeah, on top of the Spanish that we just acquired. So, the Appendix and Book Club of New York meets tomorrow, February 4th, to discuss, guess what? The Dying Earth! Head on Ooh, over a cheat the, sheet! I know! <laughs> head on over to the Commons Cafe in Brooklyn if you're around. The gathering begins at noon, and uh, the same book club will meet a second time in February, on the 11th, to discuss Edgar Rice Burroughs' At the Earth's Core. Man, these guys read a lot. Jeff Goad will be running the DCC Lankmar adventure, The Madhouse Meet, on Sunday, February 12th at the Brooklyn Strategist. Game starts at 4 p.m. Jeff really gets around. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. There's also, you know, if you're interested, he has a meetup group devoted to DCC, MCC, and the Appendix N Book Club. Just go to meetup.com and look for DCC. Oh, You'll cool. find it pretty easily. Uh, friend of the show, Troy Tucker, continues Hi, to Troy. run DCC RPG at the Magician's Forge in Northport, Florida. You can check with the store or find Troy Tucker on G Plus or Facebook for more information. And Goodwin Games has released X-Crawl Louisiana Rising, a PDF-only fundraising adventure with 100% of all proceeds going to organizations working on flood relief in Louisiana. That's awesome, although I'm sad that we still need such things. And then finally, coming up in March is GaryCon. Woohoo! with no small number of DCC judges who will be running games for you. Brendan LaSalle, Harley Stroh, Julian Burnick, Dave Beatty, Michael Bolum, Joe Bittman, Tim Wampler. Haley Sketch is actually doing a tournament of Carnival of the Damned. That is so exciting. That is, I'm just awesome that, that she is running that and taking that on. Um, very awesome to see. Corey Gashem, who's DM Kojo, Reed Sanfilippo, John Hook, Jared Crater, Daniel Bishop, Jeff Godigan, Dan Dom, James Walls, and, of course, there's going to be two of the keepers from this show. Jen and Bob will be there. Well, that is true. Jen's running DCC, though. I'm, I'm not. Yes. And, and well, specifically... Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm running, and I'm running Cyborg Commando to prove Oh, nice. No Mark? No not Mark? this time. Oh. I, I've, I've got my, my con set up for North Texas and Gen Con, so that's where I'm going to be this year. Okay. Unless something changes and I get my... My arm twisted. We'll see. Oh, is that all it takes? <laughs> Let me tell you. We only got like you a need an arm twisted? I can, I can make that hip. That's <laughs> a very nice shoulder you got there. It'd be a terrible shame if something were to uh, happen uh, to it. I was, I was very, very jealous during registration yesterday for everybody's posting about all the games that are going on. It just seems such, like such an amazing time. So uh, even if I'm not there, I know everybody's going to be having such a, a great DCC slash other adventures uh, ongoing. So yes. really, really looking forward to that. It's going to be a blast. And there will be Lankmar. There will be DCC Lankmar. I'm yes, making additional off-the-book stuff happen because, well, there needs to be more Lankmar. <laughs> Always. And, of course, DugCon potential and all the, the other normal stuff. I think I read today that they were going to try to pull together some early Inferno Road, perhaps. Join us next time as, in celebration of Gary Con, we discuss Gary Gygax's own Saga of the Old City as well as maybe being joined by a special guest and talking about their favorite Appendix N novel. As always, we would love to see what sort of things you've created based on your Appendix N reading. Submit your events or creations to us at thehub at sanctum.media, or you can find us on the regular social media sites. Keep an eye out for our future topics, and we can include your material in the show companion. Welcome aboard, Mark. It's going to be a blast. 
Oh, well, thank you. And I will try to fit my uh, personality in and, and evolve and become something that's contributing to the show in a in unique and special way. We'll see. I think you're already Leaps doing and bounds, that. Leaps and bounds, dude. That's okay. That's, that's okay. Unique. That is, that is one way to describe all of us. We are all unique. Just like everyone else. That's right. So thanks a lot, everybody. Um, thanks, everyone. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum Podcast. Join us again next time as the library opens for a special Gary Khan episode, Gygax Palooza. Sakorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2016.